Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The GEO Group, one of the two largest U.S. private prison corporations, has been spraying the pesticide HDQ Neutral as a disinfectant at its almost 2,000-bed Adelanto Ice Processing Facility, northeast of Los Angeles. The prison has used HDQ Neutral at the facility for nine years, but increased the frequency of applications because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The HDQ Neutral label says that the product can cause irreversible eye damage and skin burns and should only be used in well-ventilated areas. Detainees have complained that exposure to the chemical has caused nosebleeds, burning eyes, nausea, headaches, a sour taste, itchy throat and skin, difficulty breathing, lung pain, red and irritated eyes, and rashes. An EPA investigation found that staff and detainees sprayed HDQ neutral inside living areas in the building as often as every 30 minutes without the required ventilation or proper personal protection at a dilution rate of two ounces per gallon of water, double the concentration that the manufacturer permits for disinfectant use. Detainees reported to the EPA that the spray landed on their food and skin and got into their eyes. They also inhaled it. Detainees also reported that people in the prison mixed HDQ neutral with other chemicals and sprayed it inside of microwaves without wiping it away. The pesticide isn't intended for surfaces that contact food. In May, Immigrant advocates filed a legal complaint alleging that prison staff exposed detainees to HDQ neutral on purpose to retaliate against them for voicing their concerns about dangerous living conditions in the facility during the pandemic. Jails and detention facilities charge inmates what are called pay-to-stay fees, which can cover booking fees, room and board, medical and dental expenses, phone calls, electronic monitoring, drug testing, and more. Critics of the system contend that incarceration fees impoverish prisoners and lead to recidivism. The average annual income of arrested people is around $19,000, well below the poverty line. The nonprofit Alabama Appleseed published a report in 2018 that found that 38% of former prisoners surveyed committed a second crime to pay off the fines and fees they accumulated while in jail. University of Washington sociology professor Alexis Harris noted the vicious circle of this practice. Quote, If I could create a perfect system to maintain inequality, create inequality, and sustain it over time, this is the system. The process perfectly labels, stigmatizes, financially burdens, and imposes further legal consequences on poor people. 
A short stay in detention could cause a person to owe hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. Different types of fees vary between countries. Booking fees can be between $5 and $50. Wisconsin Watch found that the average pay-to-stay cost was about $13 a day, so a stay of 25 days comes to $335. Up next, we have our monthly headlines compiled by Perilous Chronicle, who are collecting information about the many prison uprisings and disturbances now occurring regularly. They'll be sharing these with us each month. Here are their updates from March 2021. On Wednesday, March 3rd, Steve Martinez, a North Dakota activist who participated in the protests at Standing Rock, was taken into custody after refusing to testify during his appearance before a federal grand jury in Bismarck, North Dakota. Martinez is being held in the Burley County Detention Center and could face up to 18 months in custody on charges of contempt of court if he continues his refusal. In addition to ordering him to be incarcerated, Judge Daniel Trainer also ordered Martinez to be fined $50 per day for each day he maintains his refusal to testify. This proceeding marked the third time the U.S. Attorney's Office has subpoenaed Martinez to appear before the grand jury, which was first convened in late 2016. At the Laval Migrant Center in Quebec, Canada, seven detainees launched an indefinite hunger strike beginning March 1st, demanding their immediate release. In a public statement, the strikers report that some of them have already contracted COVID-19 and others are now exhibiting symptoms. Medical staff has minimized their symptoms and only offered Tylenol as a treatment despite one detainee reporting that he has been coughing up blood and having difficulty breathing. Further, those detained are being held in solitary conditions, which is negatively impacting their mental health. The Laval strikers assert that at all times, detention as an immigration policy is an unjust measure with or without COVID. In the first week of March, several detainees went on hunger strike for two and a half days at Otero County Jail in Alamo Gordo, New Mexico. According to Alamo Gordo Daily News, the hunger strike was to demand the release of the medical records regarding health conditions, COVID-19, and the number of cases inside the facility, as several detainees have reported unsafe conditions and practices. Alamo Gordo Daily News interviewed one hunger striker, Eli Addington, who recently tested positive for COVID-19 and who commented on the lack of medical treatment and treatment from guards at the jail. The guards even made jokes, he said. They told us they don't think any of us are sick. One of the nurses here told me when I was filling out a form that there's nothing they could do about COVID. And this was before the outbreak here. She said it's just going to come down to if you die, you die. If you don't, then your body was strong enough to fight it off. It's mother nature. That's the kind of attitude they have over here. He said the solution is to lower the population at the jail. On March 5th, two detainees escaped from Coffee County Jail in Manchester, Tennessee. They escaped during a work detail, and both have been recaptured. In Ontario, Canada, at Barton Jail, also known as Hamilton Wentworth Detention Center, 50 prisoners from Units 4B Left and 4B Right launched a coordinated hunger strike on the morning of March 10th. That morning, outside supporters with the Barton Prisoner Solidarity Project used a banner to announce the hunger strike to the other units. 
By the next day, prisoners from five other units had called to inform supporters that they were joining the strike. Prisoners at Barton Jail are demanding access to cleaning supplies, access to clean bedding, regular yard time, restored visits, restored calls with lawyers, and restored programs, including the library cart for access to books. In Alabama, four prisoners escaped from the Coleman County Jail on Thursday, March 18th. The men escaped through an air vent near the showers and kicked their way through a wall on the second floor. One man broke his leg in the jump to the ground. As of Friday, the 19th, all four men have been recaptured. On March 27th at the Oklahoma County Detention Center in Oklahoma City, several prisoners attacked and then held hostage one guard. According to cell phone video footage aired on Oklahoma News 4, a prisoner explained that this was an act of protest. Prisoners inside the facility are experiencing a lack of adequate food and sanitation, according to the video and prisoners' family members. Oklahoma City police shot and killed one prisoner while responding to the incident, and the guard held hostage was hospitalized. The incident comes after years of unrest, escapes, and prisoner deaths inside the facility. Beginning on March 22nd, over 100 prisoners inside Amon State Prison in Arizona are engaged in protests including hunger strikes, responding to inedible food, bug infestations, and a lack of clean clothing. The protesters are demanding improvements to these unsanitary conditions. This week, we share the first part of a conversation with Balagoon, an Indiana political prisoner who's been locked up for almost 43 years, 31 of those years in isolation. Now, at age 61, he's seeking a sentence modification due to his worsening health conditions, as well as the fact that, as he puts it, after 43 years inside, he simply isn't the person he used to be. Balagoon was a participant in the famous 1985 uprising in Indiana's Pendleton facility. We'll talk more about the uprising next week, but this time he talks to us about the reasons for his sentence modification request, as well as how his perspective has shifted after nearly 43 years inside. He says that his activism has transitioned away from focusing on the material conditions to helping people file petitions and advocate for themselves. Balgoon speaks to mentoring younger prisoners and how the state of Indiana has already exacted a heavy toll from him. My government name is John Charles Cole. I was born in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, 1959, 1172. I was incarcerated on this particular sentence when I was 18 and when I, I was sentenced when I was 19. And I've been in prison ever since. I was initially sent to Indiana State Prison. And I did most of my time there. I did about the first five and a half to six years there. And then around about late 84, early 85, I was transferred to Pilman. I felt like, you know, Pilman would be a good place for me since I had about three more years to go before I you know, due to be released. And while I was there, there was a situation uh, that ended up resulting in me uh, getting some additional prison time. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the situation you're in right now as far as the, the conditions you're dealing with at Wabash Valley, your medical uh, yeah. issues? Uh, I was just recently put back on the shoe. 
know, uh, for my interference in, uh, in the incident, you know, concerning, you know, one of my rats. But prior to that, I did 31 years and five months in uh, isolation on various control units throughout the state of Indiana. Uh, as a matter of fact, after the February the first riot at the Indiana Reformatory, I was locked up February the 2nd and was held on lockup from February the 2nd of 85 until August the 8th of 2017. So I was released to population for the first time after 17, after 31 consecutive years and five months under on, on on solitary confinement type condition. Uh, over the years on these lockup units, the conditions and and the, the 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 toxic you know environment took its toll on me, and uh, I started having health problems. They they really began in 2009. You know, you know, it really got serious in 2009. I started uh, suffering from uh, what they call heart arrhythmias, but come to find out it wasn't so much the environment per se as a result of me taking these blood pressure pills that they give me that they call water pills. What they didn't advise me of when they gave me these pills was that once you take them, you can't just abruptly stop. You did, uh, the side effects of abruptly stopping uh, is that they narrow your arteries and your your your, your, your vessels whereas you, your organs don't get enough oxygen. So once I took the pills in, in 80, uh, 2008, I stopped taking them in. I stopped taking them subsequently right after that. And approximately nine to 10 months later, I started having these arrhythmias. And, you know, health ain't really been the same since, you know, in, in conjunction with a lot of other stuff that I done went through on the units with the water the food, you know, in just the overall oppressive conditions. But uh, in addition to that, I just got old, you know. You know yeah, I'm 61 years old now. Knees is going out, pain in my shoulder, stuff like that. You know, I'm, I'm sure not the physical specimen that I used to be. And everybody recognize that, you know, I'm an old man now, you know. I guess that was one of the reasons why they seem fit to let me out in population. You know, I got old, you know. So right now you're yeah. trying to get a sentence modification. Could you speak on the details of, of how you're trying yeah. to get the sentence modified? I found out in 2010, I do a lot of paralegal work. I found out in 2010 that when I was put on trial in June of 1987 and subsequently convicted and sentenced, in July of 1987, I found out, you know, in 2010, that instead of them convicting me of the offense that I was charged with, I was convicted of an offense that I wasn't charged with. At the particular time I was put on trial, I was charged with non-consensual confinement. But the circumstances of my case, you know, with regards to the, the rebellions that took place at the reformatory, clearly shows that when I was charged with criminal confinement, I was basically committed the offense of forcible removal confinement. That's to say that I physically, you know, took guards 
and move them from one area to another area using force. Whereas with non-consensual confinement, the circumstances are different. So I was convicted based upon the evidence of physical removal confinement as opposed to non-consensual confinement. Now I found this out, we did, you know, years later. But the law is clear that a conviction based upon a, on evidence that was never charged, you know, is a conviction that can't stand. So that was one of the issues that I was arguing within the inner course of appeal on a successful petition, but they denied it. You know, that was a, that was a can of worms that they didn't want to open. I, I felt like, you know, had they, you know, allowed me to go forward with that, it would have probably resulted in a lot of other, you know, prisoners who did have their convictions overturned who were charged under that same statute. Right. But one of the reasons why well, I felt that I was worthy of a modification of sentence it's because of the, the changes that I've made over the years in terms of reforming or remaking, you know what I'm saying, my character, the person that I was. You know, all the, the, the reputation that I've built for being, you know, a recalcitrant prisoner, a rebellious prisoner, somebody that was always running around advocating. You did uh, things that undermined the authority of the prison. They couldn't say that no more. When I came, when I, as you know, after spending 31 years and five months back here on these units, you know, I basically matured and, and, and came to terms, you know, with my own faults as opposed to, you know, always blaming somebody else from, you know, the mistakes or the choices that I made in my life. I was also good with the youth. You know, I had something to really pass on in trying to get my sentence modified. You know, those are some of the things that I was bringing to the table. That you, I, basically, I'm not the same person that I was when I caught the case. When I was when I was put on, I mean, when I caught the case in '85, or when I was put on trial in '87. That in itself, you know, what I'm saying, warrant consideration for modification. Then you take into consideration nobody was killed, you know, in the in the disturbance or the rebellions that took place. February the 1st of 1985. And so because I spent over 42 years in prison, almost 43, you know, I believe that I am deserving of a modification of sentence. For them to hold me beyond the 43 years is, you know, this goes beyond or any type of rehabilitative, you know, um, incentive that they might have had, you know, for me, you know, in, in short, I, I, I didn't gave the state of Indiana its pound of flesh, so to speak. You know, I've been suffered enough. I've been through enough. And then, you know, in, in addition to that, my health is failing. You know, so I'm, I'm presenting this, this petition in hopes that you know the state of Indiana will show me some compassion at this particular stage of my life. The specific objective with the sentence modification is they sentenced you to 84 years with four different 20-year sentences, right? Yeah, right, right. And so what the goal we're trying is to do is get them, we'll get them ran together, you know, get the consequences, you know what I'm saying, running concurrent as opposed to running consecutive. At, you know, now they changed the law since then. You know, when I got sentenced, the judge had total discretionary power right. to sentence me to discretionary sentence. But since then, the legislator, you did, thought that the judge had too much discretion. And they thought that, you know, such sentences were outrageous, you did, and in, in certain instances, constitute, you know, cruel and unusual punishment. 
So to rein the judges in, that you know the legislature took away that discretionary power, and now you know had I got sentenced under the new statute that, that they implemented in '94 and '95, I couldn't have got no more than 50 years. I couldn't have got no more than 50 years. Sir. Well, actually, you know, it could, I couldn't have got no more than 30 years. My my fault. Couldn't have got no more than 30. You know, because the, a crime that would be one grade above criminal confinement would have been kidnapping. And, you know, kidnapping carries 30 years, you know, so I couldn't have got no more than 30. So I'd have been released a long time ago. Right. To get a little bit more into your, your history uh, as an activist, could you tell us a little bit about your involvement in prison struggles and your work as a as a jailhouse lawyer over the years? I've always been accused. I've always been accused by prison officials and prison custodies of standing up and fighting other people's fight. You know, they tried to say that uh, I had a messiah complex and, you know, everything that I was involved in didn't necessarily complete that it concerned somebody else. And, you know, for the most part, they were right. But these were the things that energized me and motivated me. I always considered myself, you know, the, 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 the be that type of individual. All the individuals that I read about, idolized, you know, and wanted to emulate, that's what they stood for. You know, it's fighting for those things that they thought was right. My, my initial struggles in the system, you know, about other people were more so, you know, with, you know, in the physical sense. But later on, after I educated myself, you know, and st- start filing lawsuits, et cetera, it became, you know, more of a, a struggle with regard to, uh, System people, you know, by putting stuff on paper and writing petitions and, you know, et cetera. We were instrumental. I think we had, we had prepared the first suit back in, uh, back in 90 and 91 in the, in the case of, uh, Taifa Kataza versus, uh, uh, versus the governor back then when we, when they had, when they had opened uh, of the control unit at MCC. We were one of the first ones to file our suit. And we were instrumental in helping to organize that hunger strike down there. You know, we didn't necessarily have the network that, that, that some of the other rads had, but uh, we used our influence to, to get, get other rads, you know, to participate in it. And then when we got here, and we got transferred down here years later to Wabash Valley in the in the in the mid nineties. We were instrumental in uh talking to Human Rights Watch and uh Amnesty International and highlighting, you know, some of the contradictions that was going on on the unit as it relates to, you know, human rights issues for the uh the prisoners that, that had mental issues that were that were that were doing harm to themselves on these units. Right. Uh we we gave a few interviews, you know, in, in that regard. 
and we was always, you know, writing petitions, you know, f- for those who couldn't write for themselves. So, you know, in that re- in that regard, we were still, you know, resisting. We were still, you know, what I'm saying, uh, looking out, you know, for for uh, uh, our fellow men. And, you know, there was a lot of other people that we wrote. We, we still got a lot of that stuff that, you know, we, we wrote in the past, you know, to various organizations and various little groups that were doing work around prison issues. And, you know, we had uh, pretty much changed our tune over the years. You know, instead of, you know, taking those hard lines where we were going to tear the unit up and, you know, one saying go at these individuals on the physical tip, we, we, we changed. We, we, we toned that down. We, we got away from that. But we recognized that doing that wasn't going to do nothing but get us deeper and deeper mired into a hole. Uh, so, you know, and they recognize that too. Uh, the, the powers that be, they recognize that too. I can't necessarily really prove it, but I would venture to say that every range that I was on, because my reputation at times preceded me, that it was somebody on that range who had a responsibility to let them know what I was thinking and was planning on doing. On these units, we go out, our, we don't necessarily do it as much as we used to, but we, we still try to reach for the youngsters that come up in here, but it's different now than what it used to be. Most of the young brothers are so damaged that it's hard to reach them, you know. It ain't like it was when we come up in here with the old cats with, you know, and we were hard-headed too, but we could be reached. You know, you put us on these units with no television, no radio, and with a book, and some old cat, you know what I'm saying, that done been through some things and knew some things. You know, initially we might have rejected what he was saying, but eventually we got it. Well, it's just the opposite now. You know, oftentimes when we be trying to reach something else, it's like talking to a wall. You know, it's like it's akin to trying to, Blow by, you know, blow air into a dead body. You know, it's just, it's almost impossible to resuscitate these cats. For one reason, we can't get them to turn this music on. We can't really get them to pay attention for five minutes. You know, well, and that's that's not absolute, but you know, the vast majority of them is like that. You know, but every now and then, you know, you run into one, you know, that's a throwback. You know. And he he would give you inspiration and give you hope, you know. But they far and few between. Yeah. We used to always talk about when we was coming up, they always used to talk about you did, you know, the conditions the conditions got to be right, right? And you know, what they used to mean then was big they was talking about the physical conditions, right? Well, I think now, you know what I'm saying, we got the we got the physical conditions, but you know, now you did what we're missing is the subjective conditions. You did that mindset. You can find out more details about Balagoon's situation by visiting idocwatch.org. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, Kite Line Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. 
please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.